The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. person's soul, but the knife cuts both ways. Can the composer of a tuneless dirge be a sunny individual, or must they too be a dullard? My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and blue-eyed camel, and you are listening to Cinema Limbo. This evening's discussion centres on Ishtar, the 1987 comedy adventure written and directed by Elaine May, and starring Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman. My guest is Chris Arnsby, who offers his opinions from behind a sonic baffle. Hello, Chris. Hello. What can you tell me about Warren Beatty? Uh, he's uh, a famous Hollywood stud, isn't he? Isn't he meant to be irresistible to women? <laughs> he was once. He was nearly cast as Superman. Uh, oh, yes. And then the story goes that he was given the costume, he put it on, he ran around outside with it and went, nah. <laughs> and... That's you know that's that, a lot. That's it. You, I suspect you're about to drop some amazing piece of trivia on me. Yes, um, go for it. Blow my mind. He's the only person to have been nominated for Oscars for writing, producing, acting, and directing the same movie, and he's done it twice. Okay, what were the two films? Heaven Can Wait and Reds. Heaven Can Wait. Seriously, Heaven Can Wait. I mean, yes. it's nice. Yes. I guess he didn't. Did he win for that? No. No, I'm just surprised that it was that. I could I could have accepted maybe Bug, not Bugsy Malone. Um, Bugsy. Uh, no, what's the one? Bonnie and Clyde is the one. Oh, right. he didn't direct it. No, I suppose that's true. Shows what I know. <laughs> well, a fair bit. Yeah. Um, well, in the seventies, BT was making himself a a new kind of movie mogul. Now that the old studio system had collapsed and New Hollywood had been ushered in. Um, largely through Bonnie and Clyde. Mm. As we mentioned before, it drove a stake through the heart of Rex Harrison. <laughs> Quite right. Because that's the only way to kill him. Um, he became a very powerful figure. And by the end of the 70s, as I say, he, was, he would write, produce, direct, and star in movies that would be box office hits and make a lot of money. He did that two movies in a row. Reds won him the Best Director Oscar. Okay. And after that, he became a bit more choosy about his projects. In particular, he was keen on working again with Elaine May, who'd been extremely helpful when he was writing Heaven Can Wait. But she had never been able to get a real breakthrough in filmmaking herself. She'd started out working with Mike Nichols mm. in a comedy double act. Mike Nichols had gone on to become a hugely yeah. successful uh, writer and director. She'd had a few movies... Nothing that had really broken through. And Beatty thought that a good way to repay her for her help would be produce a movie for her where she would have creative control and he would keep the studios off her back. And he'd star in it because, as he was a big name, yeah. that would help the box office. And the result of this plan was Ishtar. Yes. <laughs> it was Beatty's first movie in, I think, six years. 
Hoffman's first movie in five. I'm surprised they've been away from acting for that long. From cinema, certainly. Yeah. They might, I mean, they may have been working in theatre. True, yeah, that's true. Hoffman hadn't made a movie since Tootsie. Wow. I... Which at the time was also the highest grossing comedy of all time. Yeah. Which people forget. And also, Elaine May worked very hard on that because she mm. rewrote the script from the ground up and created the character played by Bill Murray. It's been a while since I've seen Tootsie. Bill Murray's in it. He plays Dustin Hoffman's flatmate. And Murray supposedly improvised most of his dialogue. But he wouldn't be there at all yeah. if May hadn't been there to create his character to rebalance the whole script. Hmm. And again, you know, you can kind of... It's like watching astrology. It's like all the stars are in the right position, aren't they? You know, everything's... You have an acclaimed screenwriter. Yeah. You have two huge stars in the lead role. Yeah. You have a big uh, European name to be the um, female lead. And you have a popular character actor in Charles Grodin, who'd starred in May's first one's director, The Heartbreak Kid. Hmm. Um, Can't miss, can it? Yeah, how could, how could this possibly... Fit? And you're replicating a popular classic success of the road movies. Hmm. Have you seen many of them? I don't think I've seen any of them, actually. Um, I'm aware of their existence. You know yes, yeah. Um, well, there was, there was a string of movies in the 50s hmm. and 60s with Bing Crosby and Bob Hope, Travelling to somewhere and getting into hilarious escapades, frequently yeah. talking to the audience. Okay. Musical numbers. Um, there'd be a bit where Bob Hope would do like a, a big impassioned speech, like a catcher cup saying, For your consideration. Oh, really? That kind of thing. And it was wow. deliberately just sort of okay. poking the audience and yeah, messing yeah. around. And the suggestion was that that may maybe do something like that. Yeah. Uh, but with Warren Beatty, it would be the Bob Hope character. He wouldn't be the suave, charming ladies' man. Mm. He'd be the comedy stooge. Yes. And what better character to, what, what better actor to cast as the suave, charming ladies' man than notorious Lothario Dustin Hoffman? <laughs> Absolutely. The housewife's choice. Mm. Yeah. Had you seen Ishtar before? No. Um, I was <laughs> Do you tr- want to see it again? <laughs> no. <laughs> I was... I'm trying to. I was trying to cast my mind back a bit because it's one of those films that it came out in '87, didn't it? Yes. And my memory is that suddenly there were just jokes about Ishtar everywhere. But I don't. I never saw it. I'm not even really entirely sure I knew that. It, I just knew that Ishtar was a terrible film, and that was it. But it was kind of one of these. It was one of these things that almost word of mouth, but. Just kind of odd when you're living in sort of Essex in the late 80s. Where the hell did that word of mouth come from? Um, you know, it's not like you're having sort of lunches at the Brown Derby or anything. It's just really, it was just odd the way that suddenly everybody knew that Ishtar was terrible. Well, so many people in South and on Sea have subscriptions to The Hollywood Reporter. Well, this is true, yeah, yeah. Um, I'd heard of it. I mean, I'd seen it before, but I'd heard of it many years ago. I mean, it even, it penetrated the cultural psyche so much that Gary Larson drew a far side yes, yes he did, didn't of he? the video store in hell, yeah. which is stocked entirely with copies of Ishtar. <laughs> yes. I think he, and he subsequently apologised for that cartoon. Yeah, he said, I think he said he saw it on a plane and actually enjoyed it. Yeah. 
I mean, what that says about the rest of the flight is anybody's guess. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen some terrible movies on planes. I have, yeah, yeah. I can't even claim to, uh, uh, you know, to have done the joke about walk it, the, walking out halfway through, but the only film that I saw on a plane that didn't hold my attention at all was Jupiter Ascending, where I fell asleep about 40 minutes in. I very rarely travel by plane because I'm not rich. Mm. Um, I'm not a member of this modern jet set business. No, that's right. It's whenever, fabulous. Whenever I do train planes, it's usually um, the budget airline. But the only film I ever remember seeing on a plane was John Borman's film Hope and Glory, which came, oh. out, came out about the same time, funnily yeah, enough. Yeah, is that Second World War or something? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's about growing up during the Blitz. Yeah. And I remember being bored rigid. Okay. <laughs> um, but in fairness, I was seven, yeah. and the film was not aimed at me. I, I vaguely remember having a good night's sleep while it was on and waking up to find that it still hadn't finished. Mm-hmm. It's apparently less than 90 minutes long. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the film also has a number of vocal admirers among oh. modern directors, including Quentin Tarantino, Edgar Wright, and Martin Scorsese. And I don't normally... Nobody cares how I research this stuff, but I'm going to tell you my method anyway. Basically, I tr- if it's a film I've never watched or never heard of, I just try to go into it cold. But in the case of Eshtar... Everybody knows it's a famous bomb and all that kind of stuff. So I looked around on the internet and, yeah, I was kind of baffled by the reappraisal. There's, um, go to the Wikipedia page and there's a link to a New Yorker article by the New Yorker film critic. He, lo- he really loves this film. It's baffling. Yeah, genuinely. Um, I, going into it this time, tried to go in with an open mind. Um... And it uh, didn't work. I mean, uh, the, 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 I need to talk about the setup of the movie. Mm. Uh, Hoffman and Beattie are aspiring singer songwriters. They are playing cheap, down and out gigs in New York. They're trying to get an agent. They managed to get an agent to come along to one of their yeah. shows. And they're told that, well, there's a few bookings you can get. Um, there's an opening in Honduras because the last act were frightened away by the death squads. Uh, and if you don't like that, then there's Morocco. Yeah. And they end up deciding to go to Morocco. And then they get caught up in some revolution in the neighbouring country of Ishtar. Yes. And everyone's after them because they think that they're the two messengers of God, as foretold in a special map that someone found in a hole yes. in the ground. Yeah, that's... And antics ensue. Yes. Yeah, hijinks all over the place. Yeah, and I, I got off to a... a, a a bit of a bad start with the film because when you're watching them being terrible musicians, the film has got one joke, which is they're singing a song. Then it cuts to the audience who are all sitting there open mouthed with horror. Then it cuts back to them. Then it cuts back to the audience who are sitting there open mouthed with horror. And you just think, yeah, that, and that's it. It's there's, <sighs> I mean, there's one shot earlier in the movie, I think, at their first gig where there's just a close up on someone staring at them, yeah, literally just with their mouth open, exactly, slack yeah. I thought. That one time, that's funny. Yeah. Because it's like almost cartoonish yeah. expression of disbelief. Their songs aren't bad enough. No. That's the problem. I, like, that. I find myself, I keep whistling the tune of their Oh, meditation. I had. Because it's, 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 it's a decent little tune. Well, they're written, some rubbish. written by a guy called Paul Williams. Paul Williams, who, who is a legendary songwriter. Yeah. And there's a, there's one particular song that they're writing at the start of the film, isn't there? Something about no, they won't. If nobody wants you in a band, if you play an accordion, I can't yeah. remember the exact lyric now. I went to bed with that 
bloody tune rattling around in my head for about three hours, um, which it might be one of the reasons why I'm taking a bit of an uncharitable view of the film. But yeah, the, the songs aren't terrible, and they, but they try to compensate by being really bad performers. And it's not just that they were a bit inept or they were a bit clumsy. They have to be like the world's worst performers. So there's a whole sequence where... Um, Warren Beatty's character stands at the microphone and he's completely still and his arms are down by his side. And yeah. it just... <sighs> and he's wearing a jumper and a headband. Yeah. And that part of that stage presence is they're both wearing headbands for yeah. no reason. And it's it doesn't, it's not explained. It doesn't, it doesn't seem to be yeah. part of anything. It doesn't ring... I mean, I'm going to sound like Ted Bovis from Heidi High now, but, you know, first rule of comedy, you must have reality. And it well, doesn't, true. doesn't ring... That opening bit doesn't ring true. It, they're not bad enough for it to be a farce. And then, I don't know, it just doesn't... It just... Right from the opening shots, the film just kind of lays an egg, doesn't it? Yeah. I just think... The casting is... Mm. Just that... That single decision... To have them play the play the wrong roles, possibly, yeah, that kills it. But I wonder as well if there's always that element of there's they're two stars, therefore everything they do must be gold. So let's yeah. just point that you know, and I, I don't know. But I would have thought it would have been so much funnier if Beatty was playing the ladies' man, mm. and then that was just being subtly sent up all the way through. Yeah. Because the fact that Warren, uh, sorry, the fact that Dustin Hoffman is the ladies' man doesn't really figure into the film particularly. Not really, no. It's, it's. I think, again, what's the film where it's a bunch of Hollywood types hanging around in a mansion and then the world unexpectedly ends? This is the end. Again, haven't seen it. Took against it, based entirely on my imagining of what the film so is like. But it's it, for the reaction seemed to be that that the film was kind of like. Oh look, here comes Michael Sower, but he's not nice like you think. Look, he's being rude to a waiter, and that's and that's kind of what a hilarious subversion. Exactly, and that's kind of the same response I had to this film was, oh look, it's Warren Beatty, but he's not good with women. That's the opposite of what you think, and thence the humour arises. And he's mm. meanwhile the film's just just there. <laughs> it, I mean, it's like if he was portrayed as being like the father, he just like clicks his fingers, yes. and a woman suddenly appears. Because he's Warren Beatty, that would be quite funny. Yeah, and and it might be more in tone with the farcical, or what the, what the film wants to uh, its farcical nature yeah. to be. Yeah, and you could play that off having he's like Beatty's plays like the the charismatic frontman, mm. and Hoffman is sort of the nebbishy guy yeah. who he knows all the technical stuff. And yeah, and they and they form a like a nice um, complementary team because of that. Yeah. And you could play to their strengths as the, their screen personas. Yeah, yeah. But, but as no, you have to force them yeah. into these holes. I mean, Beatty's, Beatty's trying. You know, like, even when he's just walking down the street, mm. he's deliberately doing a slightly stiff, yeah. awkward walk. There's a couple and he's of, wearing a, a slightly stupid hat because it's winter. There's a couple of really nice moments when the film nearly got me on side, where Warren Beatty's mirroring what... Um, Dustin Hoffman does. So there's one point where I think they're talking to the agent outside and Dustin Hoffman kind of tugs on a lock of hair that's hanging down over his headband. And Warren Beatty suddenly does exactly the same thing. And the bit where um, they go... The agent gets into the taxi and Dustin Hoffman says, oh, I think I want to go for a walk by myself. And Warren Beatty goes, 
I also want to go for a walk by myself. And then they, he ends up following him into the same bar. <laughs> That's kind of sweet. And that goes much, much further to kind of express the, the nature of their relationship. Yeah. But, but yeah, the fact that... And then the fact that they're both set up to be losers because they've both been dumped by their girlfriends. And it just... Uh, it just doesn't work. The fact that... As I say, if you have that bit, that's right at the mm. start of the movie. And then eight minutes in, we get a lengthy uh, flashback yeah. of how they met and how they yeah. got to where they are. And I thought... Yeah, cut well, it. Why? I mean, at best, these scenes are in the wrong order. Yeah. They I mean, all... we have the bit where... BT is a. Uh, we should call them by their character names, really. Shouldn't yes, we? we should do. Lyle, yeah. BT's character, is an ice cream man, and he's singing songs to himself mm. while just driving past the children and ignoring them. And yeah. Going, hey, Mr. Ice Cream Man. No, no, not like that. Yeah, that's that's mildly amusing. And the bit as well where Dustin Hoffman is a terrible pianist in a restaurant. And he sings a song. He says there's a couple, they came on their 50th anniversary, they came on their 51st, and I said if they came back on their 52nd, I'd have, I'd have written a song for them. And he then proceeds to sing this song about how... It's called, is it like Leaving You Love In My Will or something? It's yeah, about it's, it's a love song about death. Is this where Ricky Gervais stole his shtick from? <laughs> there's like awkward, horrified reaction shots and people singing inappropriate songs. Except he couldn't get Dustin Hoffman, so he had to settle for David Bowie. Possibly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, that song needs to be funnier. Yes. I mean, it's, if it's you a get, bit too much of a blunt weapon, isn't it? If if you're able to sort of escalate it through the lyrics, and it starts as oh, that's that's yeah. portrait until by the end it's like Chris Morris levels of horrifying. Yeah. And have Paul Williams write the music and arrange mm. it so it's beautifully, it's yeah. a beautiful tune, but the lyrics are horrible. That might work better. Yeah, but the but the the film's joke is that everybody else recognises them as terrible songwriters except for that pair. That that seems to be it, doesn't it? Yeah, is that everybody instantly knows that they're awful and nobody else does. Um, and that's a joke that wears thin very very quickly. Yeah, because all their songs are not interchangeable, but they don't have that many songs that we hear, and none of them really make any. Deep no. impression, other than just being, in the case of the, the main one, dangerous business, being a bit of an earworm. Yes, yes, just because absolutely. of the tune. I mean, you, it leads into the whole um, suicide sequence, which looks yeah. quite expensive because they've obviously got a camera. They've got Dustin Hoffman on a ledge. It's nicely framed and shot. There's yeah, a, it's good to be met. There's a couple of nice bits. The only the only time I actually laughed. Um, really, was when Dustin Hoffman is on the edge of the building and you've got the cameras set back a bit so you can see the edge of the building and you've got him on the ledge and there's a policeman kind of like trying to creep round to the other corner of the building and Dustin Hoffman kind of flails ineffectually at him with a cushion or something. <laughs> but that's not got anything to do with the film. No. And that's part, of the, that's part of the problem is none of this has got anything to do with getting them to Ishtar particularly. No. It's just... I know I always end up referring to, is it William Goldman? It's because I've read his two books, and I've only ever read two books on cinematography. Um, but he, Cinematography? Oh, um, screenwriting, screenwriting, even. Sorry. Uh, I'm dosed how, many up. how many books have you read on screenwriting? Two, definitely two. I <laughs> uh, haven't read any books on cinematography. Um, but he talks in that about writing a film called The Ghost in the Darkness, um, 
and adding in a character that's a hunter. And the idea was that this hunter was just going to be this mythic figure that turns up, gets killed by the lions, so that the audience goes, ooh, well, you know, now we know these lions are bad news. But I think it's Robert Redford ended up wanting to play the hunter. Mm-hmm. And so the requests start, oh, can we have a bit more background? Can we have a bit more background? Can we have a bit more background? And, and William Goldman said he was writing all this stuff about how this guy had been a general in the South and then they'd lost the American Civil War and he'd lost everything and he'd left America. And, and he just remember sitting there thinking, blah, 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 who cares? You think you've got, you know, and he could just see the reaction of the audience would just be, who cares? You think you've got problems. And it's, and his, 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 his go-to example was always Rick from Casablanca, where he says, why are you in Casablanca? I came here for the waters. Mm. And he said, but if it's, why are you in Casablanca? Well, I was an insurance salesman and I sold insurance, but then the economy wasn't doing so well and I lost my job and I thought, well, maybe I should try it. And you just think, well, whatever. And that's, but that's kind of what I feel here is you can see, and maybe I'm being unfair, but it's like I can see Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman going, can you give us more background to their friendship? We need to know why they're friends. We need to know why they're so close. And no, you don't. They're terrible, right? They're terrible singers, and they get a gig in uh, Morocco. Morocco. Let's just go there. Yeah. I mean, that scene in the bar, you could completely rewrite that so that they're just drinking together, and there could be a few lines of dialogue of how they met. Yes. Or when we were when we were in college, when we were at community college. It would have to be community yes, college, yeah. not big college. And you could probably also do the, I thought the gig went okay, cut to shot of them singing an awful song, cut yeah. back. You know, there are other, but you don't need that whole whole sequence. No. <laughs> and it, the thing is, the movie's not that long. I mean, no. it's not it's not short, but it's regular length. Mm. I think one hour 47. That's quite reasonable. Yeah. But it feels a lot mm. longer. Yeah. There's a lot of fluff. And there's a point about... There's a point about three quarters of the way through where I got lost and realised I couldn't remember who had the map or why people wanted it. Oh yeah, I completely forgot about that. Who and what the deal was and and that also what? that I didn't care. Yeah, and also, what's the map for? I can't remember. It's very I, don't think it does, I don't think it does anything. I think it's no. just... Well, it's this, is, this is a, a thing yes. that does something. It's, a, it's the MacGuffin in its yeah. purest form because it drives the story and has no actual impact yeah. on it. But... Maybe. It means that the plot is then suddenly resolved at the end through this magic thing yeah. with no explanation. Yeah. And maybe that's meant to be part of the joke as well. Maybe if you're deeply immersed in Hollywood culture, that's hysterically funny. Maybe. Maybe maybe, <laughs> maybe they're mocking William Goldman. Possibly, yeah. Or Joseph Campbell or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, uh, the, the, the goddess's threshold or whatever it is. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's not to say that I have contempt for Joseph Campbell. I just think that that's one yes. recipe. I mean, that's, and there are yeah. many. There's a whole cookbook of ways to yeah. write a story. Yeah. I always remember the, the, the line I always liked was in uh, that book by Russell T. Davis, The Writer's Tale, I oh, think, yeah. where he starts talking about how he writes and then says, but don't do this if this doesn't work for you. And you exactly. think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, at, at film school, I was taught something very similar. Um, here is a range of ways that you can write a story. Mm. But if the, the idea that you have or the character that you've come up with doesn't fit any of these, then just start writing. Just, yeah. just do a first draft and just put everything down. And then use these as possible 
helpful hints mm. of how to shape your story. Yeah. Or bits of each of them. Pick and choose. As long as it's the way you want it. Don't feel that you've got to fit it in a box. Yeah. Sorry, I think I led us off on a bit of a tangent there. No, no, no. I think you're you're quite right. It's... We haven't even got to Ishtar yet. We haven't even got to Ishtar. Well, it takes them a while to get there as yeah, well. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, they fly out there and they have to have a stopover in Ishtar before they get to Morocco. That's it, yeah. Which is weird. I don't know if the whole point of inventing a fictional country was to kind of try to take the... to stop it seeming too political. But I didn't get the business with Ishtar. I didn't see why you need to... Why can't it just be set in Morocco? Because it's about overthrowing a corrupt government. I suppose that's true, yeah. Um, I mean, the, the main. I mean, originally, the plan was to film all the desert sequences in the US. Mm. Nice and straightforward. But at the time that the film was made, Columbia Pictures was owned by the Coca Cola Company. Okay. He says drinking Pepsi Max. Yes. Um, and they had a lot of money in Morocco that they couldn't repatriate for some reason so they had to film it in Morocco in order to spend the company's money it's Hollywood magic and this is clearly a great reason to reshape your movie yeah. because a company has money somewhere exactly yeah this is why so many terrible actions I don't mean the you Bulgarian. know yes <laughs> maybe the sand dunes in Morocco are, uh, are funnier who knows um, well you say sand dunes they spent several days driving bulldozers over a, a square mile of desert to flatten them because when they got there to look at the location to film right. not on a, not to scout the location but to film yes. Elaine May said I think this area should be flat so they spent right. a week flattening it and suddenly it's turned into Scott of the Sahara the Monty Python sketch and suddenly the movie becomes insanely expensive yeah. because everyone is being paid a huge amount of money to stand around in the desert wasting time when they filmed in New York they had to have two camera crews present Mm. They had the Italian camera crew for the Italian cinematographer, oh. plus an American camera crew they needed to have there for union reasons, who were paid to sit around and do nothing. Sorry, I misunderstood you. I thought you meant that they had, like, two camera setups at the same time to capture the scenes more efficiently. I didn't oh, no, efficiency? <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Ah, okay, yeah. No, they had a completely separate camera crew wow. who were paid to be there. Because the union said they had to have an American camera crew. That's 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 lovingly nuts in a way, isn't it? The fact that there's just enough money that you can go, yeah, fine, whatever. They were just they were just throwing money at it, because BT's power as producer yeah. was such that he could get what he wanted, huh. and he was just passing all the control to Elaine May. Hmm. And May had never made anything even remotely on this scale before. It was totally overwhelmed. Yeah. So when they got to, out to Morocco to film, she had no idea what to do. Yeah. And there was no, there was no discipline. That's the pro- I think that's the yeah. problem with the movie. Great comedy comes from discipline. It comes from rewriting, from mm. really honing material. A lot of modern comedy movies you have a lot of, sort of improv material. Yeah. And a lot of the time it's not great. No. You watch something like Anchorman, which I noticed you have in your show yes, over yeah. there. They shot about four hours of material mm-hmm. for Anchorman. The finished movie is a tight 90 yeah. minutes. This is Spinal Tap. is barely an hour and a quarter because they honed yeah. it down so much that we're only going to keep the pure gold. But, of course, the difference there is that there's a whole... Where's, where's Anchorman set against? It's San Diego. San Diego. 
there's a world of difference between filming in San Diego and filming in the wilds of the, you know, the Sahara Desert. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And yeah, you can find, let's, let's film 200 hours of footage in the Sahara Desert, but how let, much is that going to cost? Let's film 50 takes of vultures landing next to BT and Hoffman, mm. which they did until, until May got the, exactly the way she wanted. Right. Because vultures respond brilliantly to direction. Yes. Everyone on the film was a perfectionist. Everyone wanted it exactly the way they wanted. And when mm. they in post-production, they had three teams of editors. One doing a cut for BT, one for Hoffman, and one for May. It's just just bonkers, isn't it? It's, in some ways, it's just astonishing that it, the thing ever limped out of the editing suite. Um, it, it, well, the release was delayed by nearly a year because it's been so long <laughs> post-production. Yeah, well, okay. The really bizarre thing is, uh, while I was watching I thought, oh, what, what does this remind me of? Not just the road movies, but... Something around the same time. I, I, I couldn't figure it out. And eventually it popped into my head. Spies Like Us. Mm. Yeah. Which is also an updated homage to the road movies and has Bob Hope in it in a cameo and has a very similar plot <laughs> and came out two years earlier and isn't terrible. No. I, I Although, ironically... That has a genuinely terrible song in it, which is supposed to be good because it's, it's got a theme song by Paul McCartney, no. which is one of the worst songs I've ever heard. Yeah, but that's isn't this Paul McCartney around simply having a wonderful Christmas time? So oh no, it's later than that. Oh. It's even yeah, I think it's post Frog Song. Okay, yeah, he went through a bit of a bad patch yeah. in the eighties. This it's already been proven that you can do this well mm. with comics in the lead roles. A, yeah. a, direct, a director who knows what they're doing and has a degree of discipline. Yes, why, exactly. Why, why isn't this working? Yeah, and it just it just falls flat on screen, doesn't it? What it seemed to want to be, uh, what I thought it seemed to want to be, was a farce. So obviously, because yeah. there's a whole bit, there's the bit where they're being followed around. Um, is it uh, Lyle sneaks out to go and buy a camel and? Yeah. Dustin Hoffman's character, whose name escapes me, follow, Chuck. Chuck follows him, and then they're being followed by. They're being followed by the CIA. CIA disguised as uh, tourists. Tourists, and then they're being followed by some other guys disguised, disguised as beggars. Disguised as the CIA. And then there's a couple of cars, and this. And this everyone's wearing dark glasses and fezzes. The setup is there for it to be. Funny yeah. <laughs> is the word I'm looking for. It's like like everyone's following everyone yeah. else. And there's actually a couple of good. There are at least a couple of good jokes with sound effects where somebody stops suddenly and you hear the sound of a car hitting another car. Yeah, and that kind of works. But the whole the whole business with them being tailed doesn't work because the the CIA agents and people are like four feet behind. Um, Dustin Hoffman and there's no way his character wouldn't I don't know it just again you're back to that thing of the film not having sufficient reality and I don't know if I'm being am I being unreasonable expecting reality in a farce because, I think it's because the film is presented in a realistic way that might, like yeah. comparing it to Anchorman which mm. from the start is, yeah. is, a, is a, a comical universe yes whereas here it's very real and down to earth yeah. you have these funny characters existing in the real world so there's that disconnect in yeah. terms of tone 
I wonder if that's it. And the film tries to do all this business that, to give you this sense of like grubby, real, real politic with sort of the CIA and yeah. letters of Gaddafi and stuff. And being filmed in you know, real Morocco. Yeah. And it all looks very mm. realistic. And a huge amount of money spent on making it look realistic. Yeah. But you have all these farcical antics and it doesn't. And the two things join. don't gel. And I'm just, you know, I suddenly, I got halfway through and I was suddenly thinking of. Um, the Kipper and the Corpse, the Faulty Towers episode, where, you know, the premise is so simple. A guest has died, and Basil doesn't want the other guests to know that a guest has died. And yet from that, they spin out half an hour of complete mayhem. Mm. And this should be, you know, there's two guys, they've got a map, everybody wants it, and yet it doesn't, it never takes life. No. Well, well, the other thing we need to mention is there is the, the female lead. Mm, yes, yeah. So during the, the, the stopover in the airport, um, Chuck is approached by a boy, except it's not a boy, it's a woman, and how does she prove she's a woman? She flashes him. Exactly. She, uh, she shows him one boob. Yeah. Which you can do in a Muslim country, and it's fine. And also, yes. And also, because she believes in the concept of the map, and because of the attempts to give this a realistic basis, they keep talking about Shia Muslims, although I'm not entirely sure the, the writers actually know what, she, what Shias are, but they do isn't, talk about them a lot. Isn't that the character's name? Ooh, possibly. But I thought they kept talking... I could be wrong. I thought they referred to Shias as a generic group. But maybe Shira, Shira is the character's name. I do have a cold. It's possible I was mishearing it all last night. So that was... There you go. Maybe... I, but... Yeah, I mean, it's this thing. Gosh, I'm just, I, I'm fascinated now by the idea that, that I was convinced that they'd taken, or that they'd got this whole that, vague... That they were actually taking sides in the Muslim It's the great Shia Sunni debate, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I wonder if they were referring to her when I just kept I, mishearing. I think they probably were, because wow. I think even going that far, it, it would be really out of step with it being yeah. comedy if they asked starting to talk about uh, mm. Muslim factionalism and politics. This is, yes, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think maybe. even Warren Beatty can't get away with yeah, that. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's the, um, but even so, she believes in the map, and the map talks about two messengers of God. She's certainly dressed very modestly. Yeah, it's it's a very, very out of, out of character. Mm. It doesn't, re again, it doesn't ring true. It doesn't really, it doesn't fit the world. It doesn't make no. sense. She persuades him to give him, give her his passport. Yeah. Suitcase and clothes. Suitcase and clothes. So that, I don't know what her explanation is. What oh, she's down? just, she weeps a lot um, in the film. She's just constant. my memory of her is she just constantly bursts into tears. And she kind of bursts into tears and just explains that she's in terrible danger. And so she needs to take his suitcase. And then she kind of plays on his ego a bit, which she says that he looks like a man that, um, you know, is ready for action or something. Or at least I assume she's, you know, playing on his ego. It's possible that's meant to be a, 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 a piece of the script that's played straight. But yeah, they, the short answer is they swap clothes for some reason. Yeah. Because the first thing you'll do, you've just arrived in a strange foreign country, the first thing you're going to do is give up your passport. I know. It's, it's absurd. So they, he goes to Lila and says, oh, I've, I've 
my passport's been stolen. We have mm. to go to the uh, have to go to the embassy. So they go to the embassy and say, oh yeah, we can we can sort this out. We can get you an emergency passport in a couple of days. And Lyle's going to carry on to Morocco and mm. do that gig on, the, on his own, while Chuck stays behind. And then Chuck is approached while he's in the embassy by another American. And says, oh hi, uh, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, I'm I'm on my own. You're on your own. Do you want to go to dinner? It kind of gives it a weird undertone yeah. if I say it like that. Yes. yes. Um, but they go out to dinner. <laughs> they go out to dinner, and there's I think the other laugh I got in the movie, where Chuck is talking at length about you know, all the, the travails of the music industry and oh, you know, agents and records and everything. So, so anyway, Jim, what do you do? Oh, I'm with the CIA. Mm, yes, yeah. Really friendly and jovial, and that's Charles Grodin. Who uh, I wish he was in more films. Yeah. And he's one of those people that I've seen him in so much stuff. I couldn't, I can't remember what, but I sat there for about five minutes going, "Oh, it's him from from, from Beethoven." Yeah, maybe Beethoven. It um, might be Mid- Midnight Run. Yeah, possibly. I've definitely seen him in a ton of other stuff. No one is funnier when they're angry than Charles Grodin. Oh, right. Just remember him in Beethoven when he gets furious with the dog. <laughs> he's always funny. He I has think... that. He, he has that that balance of. Being realistic, but just just outside the realm of reality mm. for for the film. Yeah, yeah, and he he carries it. And, and there's an there's an ongoing joke where he keeps giving Dustin Hoffman bugs and lis, um, listening devices, listening devices and things. And he plays all that stuff very well. In fact, in some ways, he comes off much better than Warren Beatty or Dustin Hoffman does. But it's possible that's just because he's got the benefit of a smaller part. He's he's well cast. Yeah. They can, he fits that role very neatly in the way mm. that Beauty and Huffman don't and Ajani can't because her character is so wet and so yeah, yeah. bland she was also Beatty's girlfriend at the time oh, that, I'm sure it was just a coincidence, she gave an amazing audition, well she was you know, a big star in Europe, she'd done you know, a lot of very respectable yeah, things yeah. she worked with Werner Herzog she, so she was wow. well aware of how to deal with yeah. out of control productions <laughs> Yes, uh, she was the lead in um, uh, Nosferatu and the Vampire Okay. Uh, one of Klaus Kinski's more realistic performances in which he plays an a evil undead monster. Yeah, that sounds like it's right in the middle of his range. <laughs> it's the role he was born to play. Yes, for. yeah. But yeah, so they arrive in Ishtar and I have the bit where um, uh, Lyle is having to do the, the gig on his own. Yeah. And he winds up just having to take, trying to play his own songs mm. and the audience doesn't care, they just shout out suggestions. Yeah. And then finally Chuck appears and they wind up seeing that Samore. And then just the whole show is just then taking audience requests. Yeah. And they go down really well. Yeah. And again, that undermines the point that they're supposed to be terrible musicians. This was the bit I kind of lost, started to lose track a bit. Because, yeah, because they, 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 have, they give a barnstorming performance. They do really well. And it doesn't fit, does it? No. I don't know. And it's, a, it's nice if it's quite a sweet little sequence actually because it's nice to see them have a kind of a victory and, yeah. and to do you know and to enjoy a bit of the success that they feel that they deserve but yeah I don't know it's <laughs> I mean the, the film is about halfway through the movie by this point yeah because there's so little there's so little in terms of actual cons- uh, uh, event no. that happens during the movie there's nothing that you can really get hold of. I mean, that's the other frustrating thing about it, is there's nothing you can really point to and go, this is why it all went wrong. It just... 
it's a it's a sequence of events. I think yeah. it's a, a whole cascade of having access to unlimited money, mm. having total creative control, but not really knowing what to do with it. A huge production that you're not familiar with, and everyone wanting their own way. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that's true. So they have the, the, the they go really well in the hotel, and then you have the sequence where Shira sneaks into their hotel room. Does that? Yeah, happen? and Lyle catches her. Yeah, and they start wrestling around, and he thinks she's a boy as well. Yeah, and then he starts getting all weirded out when he kiss, when she kisses him. And then he punches her. Yeah, I have real problems with that moment. Yeah, um, it's the only bit of the film. <sighs> I try not to look at these things and go, oh my God, that's horribly unacceptable. And and to, to be fair, I think for the most part, Ishtar does steer away from obvious jokes about look at these funny foreigners and the funny things that foreigners do. Mm, but that does, yeah. is one way... It re- because the joke seems to be, ha-ha, Warren Beatty's punched a woman and he doesn't know it. I didn't think that was funny. <laughs> no. I mean, it's... It, uh... You could play that as a, a uh, he thinks a teenage boy's kissed him and he's all weirded out by it. Yeah. And then you could have that the next couple of scenes him just being really weird and mm. uncomfortable. Thinking, I, I kind of enjoyed that a bit. Yes. And then and then when you find that it's one says, oh thank God it's a beautiful woman. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm still Warren Beatty. Thank yes, God for yeah. that. <laughs> so you could you, you could there you could di- you could play on their their personas so easily. Yeah. Why did they do it wrong? Because, am I being unfair in, because you're back to the same thing, that the whole joke of the film is, ha-ha, it's Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman, but they're not like you expect. I think so, yeah. And I think it's just that. And that's not, it's not even, it may have been funny for 30 seconds, it, but that's that's the whole film. You yeah. Know? I see it, you're right, it's a joke that takes 10 seconds to tell, Yeah. but it's an hour and 47 yeah. minutes. Whereas if they've been parodying them, their own mm. personas... Yeah, you could send. You, you can find a lot of mm. areas to explore. You could send it up to ridiculous levels, which could then, you know, make the other farcical elements seem a bit, a bit less. Particularly out of since place. you since you'd be starting from a point of realism. Mm. You start from a point of reality. Oh yes, Warren Beatty, the famous ladies' man, Dustin Hoffman, these slightly awkward, fast-talking type. That people know, and you can build on mm. that rather than having to. For, like, make a start, like a, like a, a, a jumping from a standing yeah. start to say, oh, handsome Warren Beatty is yeah. really awkward around everyone, and Dustin Hoffman, who looks like a novelty potato, is yeah. the king of Marvin Gardens. Well, he is the king of Marvin, except that he's also done by his girlfriend, because the film also has to establish him as a loser for some reason. Well, yeah, and they're already losers because they're unsuccessful, yeah. terrible musicians. That's all you need. I know. Yeah. And say, oh, yeah, and they're single. Okay. And maybe that's, you know, so you ditch all the New York stuff, they're terrible, they get to... You have a little bit of the New York stuff. Yeah, just, that's just, true. Just, need, just as an introduction. You do need a little bit so of they, it. Again, yeah. Starting from a baseline of reality, and then you go off to the Yeah, desert. and then they can even go out to, they go out to the hotel, they have their moment of triumph, it's always oh, nice, let's stay here forever, blah, blah, blah. And then... Then the hilarity begins. Yeah. Or in this case, <laughs> in this case, they spend what felt like a couple of hours wandering around in the desert. But uh, at one point, I stopped the film to make a cup of coffee. I was surprised that there were only fifteen minutes left. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 such a 
the pacing is so ugh. it just is it's yeah. um, the but, camel was good I like the uh, camel it's quite well tried and it, it was makes, and, and the, the fact that it keeps barking it, what, what, what's the noise the camel's like bleating brain maybe that, it sounded like a bit like a donkey it was you know good for am I, with, the, with the noise of the camel and the noise of the car accident. So I'm basically saying the Foley work in Ishtar is really good. <laughs> On a technical level, it's fine. Yeah. Um, it's it's very well shot. Even, you know, the you watched it... It's on, in focus, yeah. It's yeah. focus. It's more than we can say for some movies we've seen. Um, you saw it on a streaming service. I got yeah. hold of a cheap DVD. It's, the photography looks very good. Yeah. It's um, a, a great Italian cinematographer whose name I'm about to mispronounce Vittorio Storaro um, the sound is good on a technical level yeah. it's you know it's it's fine yeah um, it's just the acting yeah, it's the just, directing it's the stuff on the frame <laughs> it's, yes, yeah. it's only the above the line stuff yeah the important bits because if it was a bad script if it was a good script with good actors you'd be able to get away with a lot of technical problems mm. I think yeah, you, know, yeah. you could like you think about really low budget movies where yeah. no one really knows what they're doing. If you've got like a good idea for a story and good actors, you can kind of skate over that thing. Yeah. But if you've got badly thought out performances and a bad script, it doesn't matter how good the technical stuff is. No. It's still going to be a terrible movie. Yeah. I watched uh, the Lone Ranger last night. Oh yes. With uh, with Johnny Depp as top builder as not the main character. Yeah. Um, and yeah, on a technical level, it's great. But it's also two and a half hours long, deathly dull, cripplingly unfunny, and I wanted to leap out of the window to my death to make the mm. pain stop. And, yeah. and that's a Disney film. Yes, yeah. And that's, you know, but, but then again, it's also it's a big budget Hollywood comedy, maybe. Big budget comedy. Maybe that's, that's it. That's the problem. Yeah. Comedies shouldn't be expensive. And that's what it, I've said, it reminded me a bit of 1941. Um, except actually but, but 1941 is a bit funnier um, I would say 1941 has a lot of talented people in it there's at least a, I, I, okay I have, granted I haven't said it for about 20 years at this point but there's definitely one point where they've got a gun in placement outside somebody's house and they keep swinging the gun backwards and forwards and there's this poor housewife who's running around panicking every time she sees the gun pointing at some priceless family memento and she's running around <laughs> trying to pull and that's, that's funny and that has the potential to be funny, yes. yeah. But it, but when it but it is, it's it maybe that maybe that's it. Maybe it's just big budget comedy doesn't work because 1941 also just. And that and that's a weird case because everyone who worked on that has done really extraordinary work, mm. written by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, Back to the Future, oh, right. directed by Steven Spielberg. Mm. You know how could it miss Steven yeah. Spielberg? Every single actor who's in it has done great work in other movies. Yeah, often. Adjacent to that one, um, but you just put everything together. You think, well, you think, well, this can't fail yeah. because everyone's really talented, and yet it does. Yeah. Because comedies need to be precise, yeah. and that's it's too big. And maybe they need that fear of failure. I mean, it's going back to Faulty Towers. Didn't John Cleese say that he and Connie Booth rewrote the scripts? Endlessly. Endlessly. Endlessly, because they just kept, you know, kept wanting to sharpen them up. Yeah. And maybe that's it. Maybe you just need that. Maybe if you go into something like that thinking, we it's, can't lose, 
Maybe that's where it all starts to fall apart. Well, yes, that's, then you just become complacent. Mm. I mean, Warren Beatty had had a really good run. Yeah. Uh, this is his his first big failure. And presumably Warren Beatty, he also... He wasn't necessarily doing anything that he hadn't done on other films, in that he was using his own fame and power to leverage and you know, yeah. allow p- other people to do... so. He presumably wasn't doing anything he hadn't done before. I don't know what Dustin Hoffman got up to, but I assume that he was... Well, he, by the start of the 80s, he'd gained a reputation for making nuisance of himself. Yeah, lots of, improviso- lots of demands for improvisation, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And Elaine Mayachel also comes from an improvisational background. Oh, right. And improvisation does not lend itself to a movie on this scale. Mm. Yeah. In fact, I mean, Dustin Hoffman famously was a, a nightmare to work with on the set of Tootsie. Yes, that's true. To the point where um, his agent in the movie, who he argues with constantly, is played by the movie's director. <laughs> because they thought, that well, that way, it'll look real. <laughs> yeah, yes. And it does. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. But that movie is relatively small scale and quite disciplined, yeah. which is why it's a good movie. Yeah. The first Criterion Collection film released in the UK. Oh, really? Yeah. Makes sense. That and a Harold Lloyd film. <laughs> was it the was it safety last? No, it was speedy. Blimey! Well, kudos for them for not going with the obvious. Well, they re- they released a whole bunch of them in one go. And it's yeah. like here's a couple of films you've heard of, and a couple of films no one's heard of. Yeah, because yeah. we're Criterion and we do that sort exactly. Of thing. <laughs> We've released a thousand movies, and you've heard of five. <laughs> yes, and Armageddon for some reason. I think that was an April Fool's prank that got out of hand. <laughs> Possibly, <laughs> that, that that actually makes more sense than most other explanations, to be honest. Or maybe they just really like Bruce Willis. You know who wrote Armageddon? No, not J.J. Abrams. No, really? Yep. He keeps that quiet, doesn't he? Actually, to be fair, it's the script's not the problem with that film. No. Um, well. I mean, it's, produ- <laughs> it's produced in an environment where everything's being touched by Michael Bay. That's the... Again, I think it's kind of the feeling of... How can this possibly fail? And yeah. in fairness, it, it, was, it, was a, it was the biggest hit of the I year. Oh, yeah, it yeah, it didn't fail, it, did it? It was a massive success. But, yeah, it's a Michael Bay film. Mm. Everything and we, explodes. And, and yeah. we now know what that yeah, means. Where that, where that road leads, yeah. It leads to uh, every shot having a fluttering American flag, uh, everything exploding, and testosterone poisoning by the time you get half an hour in. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to Transformers 5. Uh, I bailed after Transformers 1. I, Transform, oh. tra- the first Transformers film, I think, was the point when I officially turned into an old man because I sat about 20 minutes in, I was sitting in the cinema going, it's too loud! <laughs> and there were, whole scenes in, there were whole scenes in Transformers that I'm not entirely sure I didn't actually hallucinate. Did, does a robot wee on somebody? Yep. Okay, I didn't hallucinate that then. There's a scene in Transformers 2 where a robot climbing up the pyramids has a pair of huge metal testicles. Okay, it's funny because... Uh, testicles! Yes, exactly, yeah, yeah. Isn't that... What a hilarious sight. Mm. Bay too. That famous Michael Bay wit. Yes, yeah, yeah. Anthony Hopkins is in the new one. Is he? Yeah. Wow. Picking up a nice paycheck. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? It's just, yeah. The last one had Francis McDormand and um, John Malkovich <laughs> doing his John Malkovich performance. Not not proper acting. No, just, John Malkovich just performance. standing up. Yeah, yeah. 
but uh, yeah, Anthony Hopkins has to do something to balance out Westworld, I think. Yeah. Because that's... he was so terrific in that. And now he's got to do something that's just clearly for the yeah. cash. It's the yin yang of being a Hollywood celebrity. Yes. Yeah. Meanwhile. So, Ishtar. Um, they buy a camel. They buy a camel. Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's, well, there's a story about the camel because while they were, the, the production was working in the, in the, in the market, they wanted a, a blue eyed camel. And they found one fairly quickly. And the production buyer decided not to buy that one, but to buy to look to find another one and then use that as a way of leveraging the price. <laughs> because now you're worried about the cost. Um, mm. Little did he know that blue-eyed camels are extremely rare. And by the time he found a second one and went back to the first vendor, the first vendor had eaten the camel. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Rendering it unsuitable for yeah, production use. Yes, yeah. I, because in the film, they they quite they talk about it being a blind camel, don't they? Yes. Do you think originally it would have been blue-eyed? Go to go go to the market and buy a blue-eyed camel. I right? don't know why they would be so specific about wanting a blue-eyed. It one. probably offsets Robert Beatty's eyes or something. <laughs> Colour coordinated with a camel. Yeah. yeah. But his, and they meet, they meet Jim, and the camel stands on his foot in a hilarious. And moment. there's a, I, I suppose I should say at this point that there's this whole ongoing saga with the map, and it's one of these films where people keep telling other people what there's the so other much, characters are doing. There's so much exposition. But there's a bit where Charles uh, Charles Gordon's character, who, again, whose name also escapes me. Jim. Jim. Oh, you think Cummings? I? You think I could remember Jim? Um, okay. <laughs> right. So Jim. Um, Gets a report about the heroine and that she's um, gone to such and such a hotel room and they she meets with uh, she meets with Warren Beatty's character and all this kind of stuff and they're looking for the map. I can't remember why the CIA wants the map particularly, but I remember sitting there thinking, just arrest her. Yeah. You've spent the last you've obviously spent the entire day following her. You know exactly where she is. Why don't you just? But it's one of those films apparently where off screen everyone is just following it. Again, maybe it's meant to be a hilarious satire on the CIA or something. Well, the, the, the CIA want... Because it, it, the map will... Getting hold control of the map. Mm. Whoever, whoever owns the map will be able to control Ishtar. Yes. And the CIA is quite happy with the Emir of Ishtar being yeah. in a place where he is. Although he's negotiating with Gaddafi for reasons that never... There's yeah. The, they throw the word... Oh, yes, well, yeah, we want to get it by Wednesday because Colonel, Colonel Gaddafi's coming over. Yeah. Which, that, I mean, that is like a farce, because it's like the vicar. I suppose that's true, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, Colonel Gaddafi's coming round. And my trousers have fallen down. <laughs> yeah, that would be a whole different film, yeah. But, so it's, it's playing into, I think, a little bit of the real politic. Yes. But, again, we don't know what the map does. No. It's, I mean, it's, it, a, it's it, a holy symbol for the, for the people that live in Ishtar. And if they've got it... it they, and somehow they've decided... That these that that um, Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman are the two messengers on the map because they're the only two Americans in Ishtar apart but from all the other Americans. There needs there needs to be something like needs to be like oh like two two uh, two visiting singing minstrels or something like that. Yeah. something that means it has to be them. Yeah, but it just but it isn't. It's just two people. Yeah. And so you've got the Emir of Ishtar is announcing that he wants the two Americans killed, and you've got Jim is trying to is doing that 
because it's the CIA's job to kill Americans abroad, apparently. Um, and then you've, kind of you've got the well, you've got the rebels who are trying to get hold of the map because it will allow them to th- overthrow. Ah. And yeah, and they just and, and head pain. Uh, I just don't. I I I. And the, the frustrating thing as well is that Chuck and Lowry? Lyle. Lyle. Chuck and Lowry is a terrible film, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> That's where I'm blanking. That's another terrible yeah. film. Um, but Chuck and Lyle don't know they've got the map. No. So they don't know they're in danger. No. So they what, They just... Well, it does mean that uh, like the Hitchcockian rule of the audience is a step ahead of the main characters. I guess. So we know there's danger, so yeah. there's suspense, Yeah. and they don't. But there's no suspense anyway, because the entire film is completely tepid. But yeah. yeah, and they're sent out into the desert, say, oh, and they give Lyle this necklace mm. of beads. Oh, yeah, the beads glow in the dark. Yeah. So go out into the desert overnight and wait for the dust to settle yeah. and then come back again. Yes. But they go out into the desert and then they're immediately dying of thirst. Yeah, yes. And, and also... I lost track of why the rebels... I understand just about why Jim and the Emir want them dead. I didn't catch why the rebels suddenly decide they want them dead. I don't remember either. They, they just do. Okay, fine, they just do. But yeah, as you say, and there's a whole really awkward sequence where they're suddenly dying. Maybe because they're working with the CIA. Possibly. Or is it... No, is it because they know that... She would, they, they know that she doesn't have the map. And they've told everyone that they do have the map. Oh, yeah. Or something. They need to cover up... <laughs> the fact that they don't have the map. Because, yeah. th- because obviously, the first thing you do when you're out is, come and join our war to overthrow the Emir. We've got the holy map. They'll go, can we see it? No. Oh, right. Well, if, well in that sense, though, if, if, they kill the, if they kill Chuck and Lyle, then no one will be able to use them as... The messengers. I guess. So the others. So, it's like scorched earth. They're killing. The, they're killing them so that the other side can't use them. Yeah. And say, ah, oh, they're the messengers, and they're on our side. So it does make sense, but it's a little bit laboured. Yeah. And again, it's just more scenes of people explaining yeah, things yeah. to each other. Yeah. There's no sense of combining plot and action. No. Because while they're out in the desert, they stumble across an arms auction. Yeah where we have a sequence which is almost totally removable from the rest yes. of the movie yeah. and has nothing to do with anything. Yeah, I didn't... Again, I wasn't entirely sure why that whole sequence was... Dustin Hoffman a chance to do some funny foreign talking. I did wonder if it was... I did wonder if it was a chance for, uh, for Dustin Hoffman to display his legendary improvisational chops. Or, but I don't know. To be fair... The film doesn't seem to be full of that kind of showboating. There's no like, oh, this is a great scene for Warren Beatty. I don't think. And, and even, well, do you think? No, I mean. So I don't. I just worry that that I'm being a bit unfair and going, oh, this is the bit they put in to keep Dustin Hoffman happy. But I, don't, I don't think so. I, I think, think they just thought it was funny. Yeah. <laughs> We've seen what their track records like for those kind of decisions. I, but it it just takes so long. Yeah. It doesn't go anywhere. But you have to have the sequence with the arms dealers because obviously they need to get hold of a cache of weapons. You can yeah. t- and you can kind of see all the awkward cogs. But they, the, 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 I guess they kind of had the ending and then they had to work backwards from that. 
But yeah, I, I I did expect the bit with the arms dealers to pay off in some way that these were the people that were going to be involved with the rebellion, or they would lead them to the rebels in yeah. some way, or that they would that, that those people would all reappear for the climax or something. Um, but the climax winds up being so uh, it looks like cheap. it's sort of cut together from second yeah. unit footage, yeah, where they've wound up with some of the weapons, and then. Abdul, the guide from the market, suddenly appears. Okay. And yes. Oh, I found you. Yeah, How? F- what? Don't. How big is the desert? Yeah. Don't 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 question it. Maybe. Don't, yeah. Fact, don't put, don't pull at this thread. This is nothing yeah. but threads. Yeah, I know exactly. Um, and he's so he turns up. He's got Cheryl with him, and yeah, and then the CIA turn up in a helicopter, and oh no, someone fires a gun at them. So that <laughs> helicopter goes away, and they say, "Oh well, we can't." Uh, but they're shooting at us. So we'll be found out. We have to leave. Yeah. And then they turn up with a gunship that's got missiles on it. Yeah. And they're all stand. I mean, not that I want to imply that I've overthought the end sequence of the film, but there's four people. They're all standing in a group, and you're flying towards them with a helicopter that's got big missiles on the <laughs> side. But, oh, no, they're returning small arms fire at us. Quick, let's everybody go home and... Uh, yeah, it's as you say. I wonder if that ending was was just kind of assembled. Whether they got to a point, because that's that's the frustrating thing with films like this. Of course, there's never going to be a Criterion Edition Blu-ray with documentaries. You're never going to see what the actual shooting script was like. I wonder if this was just what can we just pull together from the footage? I think so. Yeah. Um, it says here in my notes that the raw footage for the movie wound up coming to 108 hours Ouch. which is about three times what one would expect for a, a yeah. comedy yeah and <laughs> and there's about 50 hours of that is vultures isn't yeah, it yes it's 50, 50 takes of vultures and they just just kept pouring money into it mm. but that's the thing I mean if um, because it could have been a success Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman together again on screen. People might have gone to see it. Yeah. And then we'd, at which point we'd presumably be on Ishtar 5 at this point. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, firstly they should have called it The Road to Ishtar. Yeah, that would have made a lot more sense. I mean, just to, just to get to the ending. Yeah, hmm. they decide, yeah, we can't, uh, we can't kill Americans. Well, the whole thing's off. The plan's off. Arbitrarily. And they even throw in one of those lines which is a bit of a writer's line isn't it where one of the guys the pilot of the helicopter says something like I'm I'm too high you know you, we can't shoot them from this height because the angle of the bullets will be wrong or something and, and somebody else says they're not gonna and it's one of those things where you almost get the feeling of the writer deliberately trying to lampshade a bit that doesn't make much sense in order to just stop the audience from asking too many questions about yeah. where the guide has just come from <laughs> Um, and it, t- it turns out where I've finally find out where the map is mm. that it's been sewn into the lining of Chuck's jacket yeah. okay fine whatever that, yeah. I, so, I, I, I didn't care at that point and they wind up that, well, that, that I liked at the end and it's kind of an interesting meta twist the negotiations about handing over the map are handled by Lyle and Chuck's agent yeah actually that's not a bad joke and the, they work out, so there's going to be reforms in Ishtar, um, yeah, yeah, life's going to get better there, and also they, the CIA is going to pay for Chuck and Lyle to record their album and mm. promote all over the world. Yes. And the final scene is a 
very long sequence yeah. of them performing their album to uh, an audience of American service personnel. Yeah. Who, are, yeah. who have to be ordered to turn up. And now this, t- and, and again now, Chuck and Lyle are terrible again because it's, Because they're playing their own music. Yeah. And, and also, uh, just to really. So the guy's, got the, the, the guy's got the map at the start of the film. He's assassinated. He hides the map inside his coat. Then he's assassinated. And the sister comes and makes a run for it, grabs his suitcase, puts the coat on, and. When they searched the room to look for the map, they didn't do a very good job. If it's just sewn inside his coat, isn't that kind of like basic spy- basic spycraft to check the coat for things? Yeah. Uh, but whatever. Who cares? I, I mean, at this point, I'm. And the film ends with yeah. Shiro sitting next to their agent, and she's weeping, and he says, yeah. "Oh, are you are you okay?" And he says, "Oh, I think they're wonderful." Mm. And she's the only one. Yes. Ha, ha, in ha. the world because. Oh, it's it's not agonising, but it's no. just it just sits there and dies. Yes, yeah. I mean it's very. When you look at the the comment on the internet, it is very very tempting to just sit there and kind of talk about the budget. Okay, oh my God, yeah, they they spent forty million dollars on this, but it's just not. It's not very good. I mean, that's really no. what what comes back to it. And I suppose if if they'd spent half the it wouldn't be any it probably wouldn't be any funny if they'd spent half the money on it but it, I suppose it's only got its its reputation only persists because because it was a famous bomb if yeah if it had been made for half the money and it was just as bad it wouldn't have made it wouldn't have lost so much it yeah. wouldn't have been such a, a huge place in the studio I mean Coca-Cola <laughs> Oh yes, I forgot about it. Was impacted. I mean, it, the film lost a lot of money, and Coco looked at looked at the balance sheet and thought, maybe we should be pulling out of the movie business. And they wound up selling their stake in Columbia Pictures because of Ishtar. Blimey! Huh. Well, they're not going to get very far with that attitude, are they? <laughs> you know, one massive multi-million-dollar failure, yeah. and suddenly they call it quits. Yeah, as if you know, New Coke was, <laughs> you know, anything other than a rousing success. Yes, yeah, yeah. Or Cherry Coke was an undrinkable chemical slime. Yeah, that's the one. I mean, the um, the only thing that remotely got my interest was as the closing credits were rolled. It said second unit director Michael Moore. It's not that Michael. It's no. But there was that moment going, oh really? But no, it's a different Michael Moore. But he had quite a good career. <laughs> Worked on Raiders of the Lost Ark, I think. Oh. Yeah, good for him. Well, everyone seemed to eventually bounce back. Yeah. If nothing else. I mean, BT uh, took only three years to make another movie. <laughs> Is that uh, all? Is uh, that, um, uh, God, Dick Tracy. Dick Tracy. Yeah. Which, again, I believe he co-wrote, produced and starred in. And it was a hit. And worked with Dustin Hoffman because Dustin and, Hoffman. And, and, yeah, in he, it. Dustin yeah. Hoffman seemed to you know bury the hatchet straight away. Any yeah. disagreements they may have had, um, any disagreements with the late mayor eventually settled, and she eventually, I think, eleven years later, got another movie credit. Wow! What was the other movie? Uh, Primary Colors. Okay. Which she wrote yeah. for Mike Nichols and for which she was Oscar nominated. Yeah. And she found her way out of movie jail. In about the same amount of time that Mel Gibson did, <laughs> yes, and yeah. I think that that shows that making a movie that bombs as much as Ishtar is 
as bad as uh, accusing the Jews of a blood libel in Hollywood. Yeah, I think almost certainly. Those, 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 those seem pretty equivalent to me. Yeah, losing money is the ultimate crime, isn't Ugh. it? But the uh, but what I don't get is, as you say, the subsequent reevaluation. I I don't. It's I as, don't see why. It's. I mean, what is what's the um. There's a product, there's some sort of advertised product saying, oh, you know, it's as good now as, hmm. you know, when we first started making it three million years ago. Yes, yeah, yeah. No, I know <laughs> the kind of, Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I know yeah, what that But, yeah. Ishtar, Ish- I mean, it's, it's 30 years old this year, of course. Yeah. And it's as bad now as it yeah. was then. And yet, now suddenly people seem to. I just don't. I don't see what grounds there were for rephrasing it, and I think more than anything, if it was just, if it was just a dud, I'd be quite happy to leave it at that. But it's this parade of people. big, big name people that are prepared to start going. No, this is a misunderstood gem. I just want to go. Why? Well, Martin. Uh, well, uh, Edgar Wright and Quentin Tarantino. I'd say. Well, I've seen some of your movies, and then they're, yes. they're, they're not all that great. And Tarantino is a bit of a fruit loop. But Scorsese, I think. Maybe he likes maybe, the New York scenes. Maybe. I mean, I wouldn't want to say, or maybe he's friends with people involved, because mm. I think he'd be above that kind of nepotism. I just think, you know, if Martin Scorsese says it's good, then it really should be good. But it's not. Yeah. So what's his excuse? Yeah, but that's the thing, is that, that there's these people that they obviously see something in it, but all you ever see is references to people that... I mean, it, it really is worth tracking down the New Yorker article about Ishtar, because I read the description of that film, and... I didn't recognise it. it. It's just astonishing that the, the amount of... Like, even in post-production, they were in a running battle with David Putnam, mm. Columbia, who hated Warren Beatty on a personal level and hated Dustin Hoffman. Really? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm aware that, that there'd been some bad blood between Putnam and Beatty. I can't remember what the cause of it was. But... Overspending on Reds. Oh, right, there you go. Uh, but I... And on, on, with Hoffman, uh, Hoffman forced uh, the script for Agatha, the Agatha Christie, Ag- the film about Agatha Christie, oh, right. to be rewritten to, to, be, to beef up his part. And uh, supposedly Putnam deliberately sabotaged the movie. In post-production, no. he didn't need to do very much to yeah. sabotage this. Yeah, he really didn't. Um, I mean, basically, <laughs> the horse had already broken all four of its legs. Yeah. All he did was put it out of its misery. Yeah. Thanks to Chris for making the time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is now on iTunes with thirty episodes available, so please download, review, and subscribe. Podnose is also on Patreon so please do pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. We're also on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo and in person at j underscore j underscore phillips with two L's. However, until next time, I need your help, Barry Manilow. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com.